Welcome to our new podcast series, Street Cred, powered by Cowan's Washington Research Group. Our resident policy pirates are planning to release interesting, insightful episodes weekly spanning key issue areas. We landed on the title Street Cred since Cowan's Washington Research Group lives at, and you could argue lives for, that all-important intersection of Wall Street and K Street. In the coming weeks and months, you'll hear regularly from Jarrett Seberg hosting the aptly named Tip of the Seberg, Rick Weissenstein conducting your monthly checkup, and Chris Kruger as the dashing leading man in Nightmare on K Street. Since recovering health and biotech, financial and housing, trade and tax, as well as political analysis, you can say that this new podcast series will keep you healthy, wealthy, and wise. But only if you rate, subscribe, and tell a friend about Street Cred. Welcome, everyone, to our second podcast for Cowan Washington Research Group. I'm Rick Weisenstein, a healthcare analyst. And like everyone else, uh, we are here and trying to ramp back up again after some downtime due to the pandemic. We call this podcast the Monthly Checkup, and we hope to make it a companion piece to the weekly checkup written written product that Eric Osaroff and I do for Cowan Washington Research Group. The weekly checkup looks at what's upcoming in healthcare on Capitol Hill and the administration. And each month, we want to do the same thing, taking a look at what's upcoming uh, at the FDA uh, and in a pharma biospace uh, for the next month, uh, along with discussing some other issues of importance to drug makers and the drug supply chain. I'm overjoyed to be joined again, again being the second time, both times, maybe both times, second time, either way, by Mike McCann, who's a founding partner of Provision Policy, which covers the FDA and all things biopharma uh, for a number of clients. Uh, Mike and his two partners, Cole Werbel and Ramsey Baghdadi, all cut their teeth at the legendary biopharma newsletter, The Pink Sheet, where Mike was the editor for 20 plus years. And I say this all the time, it's mostly because I think it aggravates Mike, but Mike has really spent most of his adult life covering the FDA and the pharma biospace. Uh, that's the part that our uh, aggravates him because it makes him sound old and I'll I'll throw at the end there and there's really nobody better at this than him so then he doesn't get mad at me anymore so with that well, great introduction you, Rick I got it I got to jump in there though and just point out at least you're acknowledging that I'm an adult so I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> Uh, so you're one up on me already. Uh, so let's dive in. Uh, our first segment, which we're calling the state of play at the FDA. So the, in the coming month, uh, the most interesting, and in fact, the only ADCOM uh, that the FDA is planning on holding is on tap for August 13. Uh, even if this was not the only one, it would still be one we would focus on, if only out of morbid curiosity, because the first virtual ADCOM was a bit of a mess. Uh, Mike, can you run us through what to expect uh, at the meeting for uh, Ryan Sill, which I'm hoping I'm pronouncing right, probably not. But uh, your 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 guess on the brand is probably as good as mine at this point. But we'll we'll hear it live, or we hope we'll hear it live on August 13th. And you're correct; it's uh, the second time the Oncology Drugs Advisory Committee will be trying out a, a quote unquote virtual advisory committee meeting. And it's really a teleconference. Uh, turns out they don't even bother at this point trying to do the the sort of Zoom calls we've all gotten used to with video. Um, the first one, uh, I think, as you alluded to back in July, was uh, a, a near disaster, or maybe we could almost call it a disaster from a technical perspective, all kinds of trouble with the, uh, really a pre-recorded uh, sponsor presentation that they couldn't quite get to work, and then all kinds of audio problems throughout the day. For what was actually a fairly straightforward review in the end, it's, uh, it was a GlaxoSmithKline uh breakthrough application for a myeloma therapy. And clearly, in hindsight, the purpose of the meeting was to highlight an unusual risk profile 
not really to question whether it should be approved. And, and sure enough, it was a unanimous vote for approval uh, when they finally got uh, to the point where people could vote. Um, this meeting sounds like it's going to be a, a lot more complex in every way. And it's a company called uh, Mesoblast, uh, an Australian firm with an allergenic cell therapy. And it's for a very uh, dire condition, pediatric, severe uh, pediatric graft-versus-host disease. Uh, so transplant rejection that is, of course, a life-threatening risk. Um, it, the agenda outlined in the Federal Register for this meeting is a full-day agenda. The first meeting was only supposed to be a half-day, but it took a full day because they had so much trouble. So they're, they're, they're more ambitious right out of the gate for this one. And it starts with the, you know, specifically saying that the morning session is going to be focused on issues related to the characterization and critical quality attributes of this cell therapy as it relates to clinical effectiveness, which is uh, both a, uh, a topic that I would think would be a challenging advisory committee conversation in the best of settings and also probably an ominous topic for a sponsor where you're hoping the focus is just on uh, safety and efficacy. Um, then the afternoon is going to be devoted to what sounds like the more typical uh, discussion of whether, you know, what's the clinical benefit and is it good enough for approval. Um, so this is, a, this is an unusual application and there's obviously a lot to talk about with it. The, the sponsor's uh, uh, presentation of the data publicly, you know, if you believe it at face value is, is very impressive. Um, they have a single arm trial with matched controls. And you know they assert that there is a 28-day response rate in this in this dire condition of 70% versus 43% in the control arm, and even a, a survival benefit, 100-day survival rates of 74% versus 57%. So for me, just as an observer, this is the kind of application where I think if FDA was completely confident in that level of efficacy, they would not be going to an advisory committee. They'd be trying to accelerate the approval as best as they could. So they obviously have some issues that they're looking forward to talking through with the committee. Um, just another layer of sort of uh, public interest in this application, uh, the sponsor is, is simultaneously testing the cell therapy as a treatment for acute respiratory distress syndrome associated with COVID-19. So they actually have a trial running. And uh, again, they are uh, projecting that they'll have some data potentially available at the end of August. So there could be a layer of sort of public interest underneath all this that has nothing to do with the uh, proposed indication that's under review. So this will be a fun test, um, both to see how the virtual technology works on the, what will actually be the third advisory committee using this format and the second oncologic drugs meeting, if they can actually get the technology to work well. And it's also a pretty interesting application that clearly has a lot to talk about. So it should be an interesting day on the 13th. And Mike, you've talked about the first one uh, that happened. And one of the things you pointed out was normally you get the FDA leadership there or people that matter at the FDA there who will uh, discuss something or speak out or you can get their body language or you at least have a chance to see what they're, uh, how they're reacting to things. Uh, you don't really get that in this situation. And for a sponsor like this, which in this particular submission, uh, that might be a big deal, right? Yeah, definitely. And and the first meeting was sort of the classic ODAC, and, and Rick Pazder, the head of the Oncology Center of Excellence, was kind of the host of the meeting, but said nothing during it. And that's it's it's not unusual for him to sit quietly if he thinks the meeting is going the way he wants it to, but he's also very famous for just sort of stepping in at, 
the middle of discussion and telling the committee they're off base and they should think about something else. Um, the second meeting, that was actually a cardio-renal committee meeting, was where it really stood out to me, where you had the, the senior FDA officials who normally relish engaging in debate with the committee and, and sometimes, you know, frankly, on site issues that probably aren't that important. But usually you, you leave those kinds of meetings with a feeling that, you know, the senior management had a, you know, was either favorably or unfavorably inclined and, and bought or didn't buy what the committee was saying. And here they just, they, they introduced themselves at the start of the day and they said nothing for the rest of the meeting. And, and you were left wondering, does that mean they agreed with everything they heard? Does that mean they were called into another meeting, didn't even pay attention? You know, there's, there's nothing you can learn from that. And in that particular case, the meeting ended in a split vote, so it was 8-7, and I'm sure as the sponsor, you would love to have some clue whether the division director and office director were more persuaded by the yeses than the noes, but there's just no information to be gleaned from it. So it's a, definitely a very different experience. And here you have clearly going to be some complex discussions. It's going to be the biologics group, presumably, rather than the drug team that's running the meeting or at least discussing the application. And it might be very difficult uh, for the sponsor to get a read on what the decision maker, what the decision makers are actually hearing and taking away from the meeting, which, after all, is what what really matters. So that's something we're all going to have to adjust to for as long as this uh, strange pandemic period continues. And it, it, you know, it also seems like FDA is being really sparing in using their advisory committees as well. So at least they get some public feedback, but. Uh, uh, I think probably everyone is eager to get back to those in-person meetings once it's safe to do so after just the first two experiences were probably enough to learn that. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, they have to be upset after that first one and all the, all the troubles that they had. I mean, that could not have been a, that, that did not put them in the best light as far as that goes. So I'm sure they're happy to move on. Um, there are also a number of uh, applications with decision deadlines in August. So uh, let's move on to our next segment, which we're calling Second Opinion. Um, there's about uh, oh, eight or ten of them this, uh, that are up uh, later in the month. So, Mike, uh, which of the applications do you want to highlight as being particularly uh, interesting? Yeah, there are a lot, and it's a you know it's a funny um, for me. From you, you've been so kind to reference how long I've been doing this, but you know, once upon a time, August was was real quiet, and you know, like everyone else in Washington D.C. went on went on vacation in August. In the kind of modern user fee era, August turns out to be a really busy month because if you're if you're trying to get something filed at or near the end of the year, a lot of the deadlines end up falling into August, and you end up having often these sort of clusters of very interesting applications coming up all at once. Um, one thing just to point out, there would be uh, probably twice as many uh, new molecular entities with decisions coming up in August, except that the oncology group at FDA has already approved almost all of them that, you know, were filed. They had August deadlines, but that group works months ahead of schedule. So um, that's just kind of an interesting side point. But I would call out there is at least one of the uh, oncology group reviews that's pending, which is that GlaxoSmithKline myeloma drug that was the subject of the advisory committee review. It has an August deadline, um, certainly based on the unanimous recommendation for approval. One assumes approval will be forthcoming, um, and I think what most people will be watching on the investor side and, and everywhere else will be what the label says in terms of this unique risk it has for uh, an ocular toxicity and, you know, how strict are the controls to make sure that that's appropriately screened for and then what, if any, commercial implications that ends up having. But we'll, 
you know, and I guess we'll also see if having to take it to the advisory committee and discuss it first um, leads to what would be a very unusual situation where they actually have to extend the deadline. I, I don't expect that, but uh, it would be an interesting just test case if they uh, end up having to actually delay a decision for once in that oncology group just because of the getting through this advisory committee process. Um, to me, though, the, you know, probably the most exciting and interesting application with an August deadline is a potential first hemophilia gene therapy from BioMarin. Uh, the deadline date is August 21st. Um, you know, we are uh, hopefully on the cusp of a wave of really potentially curative gene therapies for rare diseases. Um, this is a this is a obviously hemophilia A is a, a very interesting and important one, and this is an application that has a lot of interesting regulatory wrinkles to it. It's presumably going to be an accelerated approval for a gene therapy, and so uh, a lot of us will be interested in seeing exactly how FDA translates its guidance in this area into an actual approval and what the confirmatory trial obligations look like and so forth. Um, I think should it be approved, it will also be a really remarkable test case uh, sort of commercially for gene therapy as well. Obviously, the, the potential of a cure in hemophilia could be one of the most extraordinarily valuable medicines ever compared to the cost of uh, clotting factors and, and so forth that's used in treating the disease now. Um, this therapy does not appear to be a cure in everyone and maybe not in anyone. It might wear off over time. And I suspect there'll be a lot of interesting conversations, should it be approved, around what the best way is to price it and, and the best way is to contract for it in a way that uh, captures the value um, depending on how it actually performs in patients. So this is one that I think um, both as a, as a regulatory story and then, then looking forward as a reimbursement and coverage story could be fascinating for, for the months and years ahead. And I guess I'll just call out two other very different sorts of applications that are resubmissions that just will maybe give a, a sense of where FDA is on some old topics. Um, there's a company called Trivana that has a novel opioid pending uh, for pain, and it was rejected the first time around, and the resubmission is in with an August 7th deadline. Obviously, the opioid class has uh, been one of the toughest and most difficult areas for FDA and in, I guess for the whole country uh, before the pandemic anyway and hadn't gotten any better since. So that'll be one to watch and just see if uh, there's any sign that FDA is kind of hard line on um, getting any any creativity in the opioid space is, is still in place or if there's been any change in thinking there. And there's also a, a resubmission for a novel uh, testosterone formulation uh, from liposine that comes up on August 28th. And again, there was a a lot of uh, uh, regulatory agita around the, the so-called low T claims for testosterone therapies, safety issues in the class, um, a lot of work done on on trying to relabel them and, and really sort of restrain what FDA started to view as out of control use of these products. Um, this application was submitted in the middle of all that and, um, you know, it's a reformulation of testosterone should be a relatively straightforward decision. It either mirrors other approved products or it doesn't, but it got kind of caught up in a lot of um, those safety concerns and, and the fear of overuse of these products. So again, it'll be an interesting test case come August 28th about whether 
uh, that climate has changed at all, and, and FDA is a little more comfortable um, uh, allowing new entrants in this class going forward. So as I said, there's tons more, but those, those are just a few to, to whet the appetite for the month ahead. I do long for the days when August was nice and quiet and everybody sort of unilaterally disarmed and went home and we didn't have to really work very much. Much different climate now, that's for sure. So, um, Mike, let's move on to our next segment, uh, which we're calling Diagnosis. Uh, the idea here is we want to look at an issue or issues in a bit more depth. Uh, and this month, I want to ask you about two important topics. Uh, the first is the state of play on manufacturing inspections. Um, at the outset uh, of the COVID lockdown, it was feared that inspections would be halted completely. But it's really played out as not being all that bad, at least as far as we can tell. Um, and I know the FDA recently released some new guidance on inspection. So really, where are we now? Yeah, I, I, certainly, the, I mean, the agency did halt essentially all, uh, certainly all international inspections and then most domestic inspections. They, they always uh, made an exception for quote unquote mission critical inspections, which they never quite defined. Um, but what they've been able to do, uh, you know, starting in March through the present really has been to uh, accomplish the goals of particularly things like pre-approval inspections by other means. Um, you're able to work with sponsors to, to collect, you know, uh, paperwork remotely um, without having the, the physical site visit by the inspector. They've clearly relied a lot on uh, cases where other um, global inspectors have been able to visit a facility, even if FDA can't travel there and so forth. And remarkably, through you know, through this period, there have been really just a tiny handful of applications where it seems like the lack of an inspection, you know, became a hurdle to actually making a decision on time. And for the most part, FDA has just been moving forward. Um, they did announce and, and you know, a, a policy to resume and, you know, <laughs> to resume, quote unquote, routine inspection activity in the U.S. Uh, starting July 20th. Um, but it's, you know, routine in the sense that they're going to now be visiting facilities, not necessarily based on a pre-approval inspection, but to do their their normal checkup, as it were. But there's nothing routine about it. Uh, all inspections, even in the U.S. right now, are pre-announced. Uh, I think that's a safety measure that everyone understands. They can't just uh, have a group of people show up un unexpected at, at a site uh, at this time. And it's also kind of a, an odd and not overly transparent set of metrics that FDA is applying. They're making clear that they're going to prioritize these inspections. So if they're coming to visit a facility, it's, you know, it's for a reason. It's been a long time since they've been there or they have some underlying questions that they're trying to answer. Um, but they're also following their own sort of guidebook on where and when it's safe to travel, even within the United States. Uh, which I guess is, uh, in its own quiet way, an indictment of, uh, of the federal guidelines as they exist, because there's no, it, it appears that FDA has come up with its own set of metrics that will decide when a certain part of the country is safe enough to inspect and, and when it's not. Um, and as far as I know, uh, those are not public. They're FDA's own uh, secret sauce, as it were. So there's presumably some inspection activity has resumed, but boy, are we a long way from being back to uh, quote unquote normal inspection activity. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to watch over time. And one of the things I would flag, you know, in the near term 
is when FDA does go and inspect a, f a facility, if they do find something wrong, I think there's going to be a tendency to try to make an example, draw as much attention to the, to the errors as they can in the hopes of uh, getting the attention of all the people they can't inspect. That's kind of normal uh, reaction by the agency when they're feeling constrained on their ability to inspect. That will be balanced against a, a very strong desire to do nothing that harms access to medicines during this pandemic. So it'll be an interesting balancing act there. When we do get back to normal inspections, so say hopefully a year from now, maybe if you're optimistic, there'll be a vaccine and, and travel will be more or less uh, you know, acceptable almost anywhere. I think there'll then be kind of a look back on all these products that were approved without the usual pre-approval inspection. And there may be a learning that what FDA did during the pandemic can work just fine in the future. It's clearly more efficient not to send inspectors to every plant every time. And if it turns out that that worked really well, that could be a, a, a new normal going forward. And the flip side being if they find a case or two where uh, they regret uh, not having done the inspection up front, you you might see a, a period of clamping down on flexibility uh, on pre-approval inspection matters for a while too. And that's just something to watch if and when we do get back to normal travel. So anyway, uh, you know, where we are now is at least there's some inspections that are happening. Uh, I still think for the most part, review decisions will be made even if they can't inspect uh, in the normal sense. And then we'll we'll all wait and see where this shakes out a year or two from now. Great. Uh, the second uh, question has uh, cropped up, I think, with investors is that there's been a rash, if I can call it that, a small rash anyway, but a rash nevertheless, uh, of complete response letters coming out of the FDA. Um, there's some concern that maybe this is a new, uh, you know, something new at the FDA, or is it really just happenstance uh, that these four really came up all at roughly the same time, or do you think this is a sign of change at the FDA? Yeah, it's a great, it's definitely a question that comes up, and it, and it comes up whenever there's one of these sort of weird clusters it, that, that happens to affect, um, you know, applications that investors are, are focused on, because obviously there's, you know, there's refuse to file actions and complete response letters all the time, and a lot of the time it's, you never even hear about them because no one's really paying attention, they're not, not commercially, or no one seems to think they're that important. But you get a couple where they, they, they feel surprising and, and they're, and they're being followed by the street, and it's human nature to then, you know, tie together a, a broader pattern. My immediate instinct is always to say, you know, it's this is really just kind of a statistical cluster and nothing more. Particularly when you look at the overall uh, backdrop of FDA's performance. I mean, that we we could set a record for new molecular entity approvals this year. I'm not sure we'll get there, but that would, uh, you know, we're we're on pace for close to 60 which is extraordinarily you know, uh, productive in terms of the output from FDA. And actual NDA approvals, not just the new molecular entities, is also at, at or near record levels. So overall, most applications are still you know, kind of cruising through the agency. At the same time, you know, it's worth at least keeping a close eye on things because you know, we are now six months into this incredibly disruptive period. FDA employees are disrupted just like everyone else. 
uh, even without that, you know, you do have a, a, a transformation of the, re, the review divisions at FDA and an, an expansion of the number of divisions, which means some newer leaders who, who are less experienced in the job. Um, that doesn't mean they're incapable, but it may be that at least in some cases they haven't always learned some of the hard lessons about, you know, the difficulties of communicating with sponsors. And nine times out of ten, when there is a problem with an application, it basically comes down to FDA told the sponsor one thing and, and they heard another. And you can always blame either side for that if you want. But the, the truth is, as people at FDA learn um, where the pitfalls are, they've become much better at communicating and making themselves clear. And then, you know, some sponsors will always, you know, miss the message if they can because they have other agendas in mind, but be that as it may. So I guess from, from where I sit, Rick, I, I'm still inclined to say this is kind of a random cluster of a, of a few um, specific circumstances. Uh, some divisions at FDA are better and worse than others. We talked about oncology. You know, it, if, you're, if your application is rejected by the oncology group, uh, you know, my ironclad assumption is it's because you did something wrong as a sponsor. Uh, because the oncology group is falling all over itself to do everything it can to keep applications moving. You know, there are other divisions where I don't feel that way. We mentioned opioids. The pain analgesia division has been has been struggling with a, an incredible workload around opioid policy, it, really an impossible workload. And they've now had layered on that. They're responsible for a lot of critical care medicines that are in short supply. So it's not surprising to me if in that division sometimes maybe a sponsor has trouble getting the attention they might otherwise get and need to have a successful interaction. So it's still, there is going to be some variability. And I think we should all just keep a close eye on whether um, over time the same division seems to keep running into the same obstacles, or if it really is just uh, now and again an application is going to go off the rails and it's nothing more. Well, and, and that division that deals with opioids, of course, has also been the center of a number of uh, uh, hearings on Capitol Hill, et cetera, uh, where you usually get the normal amount of grandstanding and in some cases even attacking the FDA. So one could understand certainly why they would be perhaps a bit more gun shy than some of the other ones. Yeah. And, and they even just had a leadership transition of their own where the division director, another senior person had left. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind of a perfect storm of that would be not surprising that a sponsor might have some difficulties in that division. And the flip side being, if, you're, if you are a sponsor trying to work with that division, you should be prepared for what you're getting into and, and you know, over-communicate accordingly. I can't imagine that it's somebody new at the FDA who gets assigned to that division says, woo boy, am I happy. <laughs> yeah, it That's got to be the be, month uh, of all the divisions. I don't have any data on this, but I got to believe that that would be the least uh, popular division to be assigned to in the in the agency, but um, yeah. and the flip side is there's certainly uh, you know there, there certainly are people where that's their specialty and their passion. So we don't. But uh, boy, it's a thankless job. I mean, it's a thankless job. There's no right answer on these opioids, unfortunately. And yeah, that's, that's, isn't that the truth? Um, so this brings us to our last segment, uh, which we're calling prognosis. Uh, the idea here is to look at some upcoming events outside the FDA uh, that could have an impact on the drug sector. Having said that, uh, I have two things to ask you, one of which uh, actually
actually is the FDA, so I'm already lying, um, but we'll move anyway. Um, Mike, I wanted to ask you about the recent executive orders out of the Trump administration um, and what you think they they mean for the dialogue on drug pricing going forward and you know what you think we're really going to see. Obviously, the two of interest were the uh, were the rebate rule um, and then the fourth one, the one that they haven't really released, appears to be discussion of the IPI. Um, Certainly with the rebate rule anyway, uh, the clause in there saying that it can't increase spending or increase premiums would seem to be an ironclad poison pill unless I'm missing something. Um, so what do you think about those and do you really think these are any kind of threat whatsoever to the industry at this point anyway? Well, yeah, Rick, I think now, you know, President Trump has finally done it and he solved the drug pricing problem. So we're set. Okay. <laughs> um, these are, as you, as you allude to, all the ideas, you know, and I would also just mention the import policy executive order as well, only because that's the one where, you know, there is a, there is a proposed rule that was issued and the comments uh, were due in, in March just before the pandemic came. And, uh, you know, that, that does fall in FDA's bailiwick. I think left to their own devices, the agency would happily focus on other priorities. But, you know, the executive order should remove any doubt. They'll, they'll issue a final rule at some point, and then the state of Florida will be able to apply for permission to import. Anyone else who wants to can, too. But I have a feeling that the state of Florida is the most important applicant there. Um, I doubt anyone's going to be importing drugs wholesale before Election Day, but I would be shocked if the rule itself doesn't come out before Election Day, since I think it, 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 the president uh, wants to deliver that. Um, the rebate rule is, a, is definitely a much bigger deal for the industry and how drug pricing works, but it was, a, it was fascinating to just see the, the entire debate over the rebate rule seem to play out uh, exactly the way it did in 2019, you know, in, in the course of about 48 hours when the president was going to sign these executive orders and he was going to put the rebate rule in there and it was out and it was back in. And then as you allude to, it's back in there with the caveat that, you know, HHS Secretary Azar will basically have to put in writing that he thinks the, his own actuaries and the Congressional Budget Office are completely wrong when they say that this rule would increase premiums and federal spending. Um, I suppose he could do that. Uh, <laughs> it still comes back to then the president would you still would have to somehow get a final rule out the door. And even if they did got it out, say, tomorrow, uh, it's too late to implement the policy in 2021. You know, the Medicare plans are already, the bids are in, and you can't really just tear it up and make them start over. Um, so this is something that clearly will be decided after the elections. And um, uh, I personally don't think Secretary Azar will be back after the elections, uh, even if President Trump should win. So I'm not so sure we're ever going to see a final rebate rule. And then you mentioned the, the last one is this, you know, this invisible ink executive order that uh, uh, is the International Pricing Index or Most Favored Nation or uh, something else. And you know, apparently was signed mostly with the intent of getting the, the drug companies to come back into the White House for a photo op similar to what happened way back in January of 2017. And uh, the drug industry said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And they, they're, I guess, chosen not to take that threat seriously right now. And, you know, that probably tells you at least how they're handicapping the election at the moment, though uh, a lot of time between now and November. So I guess, yeah, I would say that 
you know, there'll be some interesting precedents set, uh, certainly by that import rule should it come out in final form. Um, but I kind of don't think we got this drug pricing problem uh, moved really even one inch forward yet uh, heading into the election. I think that's fair, and I would completely agree with you on that. Interesting, the uh, Florida uh, reimportation from Canada waiver, which they're which they're looking for. Uh, the other state that has been public about wanting to do that is New York, and uh, I, I looked it up. And New York and Florida added together have more people than uh, Canada and. In the U.S., they use significantly more drugs per person than Canada. So unless Canada is basically going to send us all of their drugs, this would seem to be, which they've said they're not interested in doing, surprisingly enough. Um, th again, this would seem to be more of a political uh, maneuver than an actual, something actually aimed at reducing drug prices. Um, I will ask you one last question and then we'll let you go. Um, the uh, FDA seemed to suggest very recently that they might not need an ADCOM for uh, COVID vaccines. That's kind of an interesting turn. Um, can you tell us a little more about what their thinking is there and, and where do you think that's going? Yeah, great, great question. It's good to bring us back. You know, we can go full circle and get back to advisory committees where we started, which is fun. Um, you know, this was a, a, a CDC advisory committee meeting, the ACIP Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. They've, they've been proactively uh, you know, preparing for COVID vaccines and many, many important issues about, you know, who's going to get them and how quickly and in what form. Uh, there's an FDA official from the vaccines group who serves, you know, kind of as an ex officio member of ASIP and, and spoke up at the most recent meeting to talk a little bit about the FDA approval process. And of course, everyone is worried about uh, will the agency be, uh, you know, put under uh, political pressure to approve a vaccine, you know, the, the October surprise theory to get a vaccine out ahead of election day and, and uh, allow Trump to declare that the virus has been defeated. Um, so I think the broader context is, you know, an, an attempt by a career uh, FDA official to assure um, ACIP, the, the, this external committee that, you know, FDA does things by the book and, and follows the process and follows the science. You know, in doing so, uh, that they're also trying to do it as quickly as possible. They recognize, obviously, this is the most important, uh, probably, public health application potentially ever uh, that they would have to review, and you don't want to waste any time on unnecessary steps. And we just talked about how difficult uh, some of these virtual meetings were. Even an in-person meeting is is logistically difficult. And I think left to themselves, the, the vaccine group at FDA would just as soon review and, and if appropriate, approve or authorize, take the first step of an emergency use authorization before the full application is ready um, without the extra time and burden of preparing for an advisory committee. And I think that's where the that's where sort of the agency career staff is. And it's and it's a very logical place to be, um, you know, just to be determined is, number one, will Congress uh, impose some kind of legislative mandate? Uh, certainly Democrats in Congress have already proposed that there should just be, a, as part of the next COVID bill, a requirement that FDA cannot approve a vaccine or even authorize one under their emergency use procedures without first hosting a, a, a meeting of their own vaccines committee. Um, those kinds of mandates are, FDA never likes them. 
uh, it just takes away, you know, you, you get all kinds of uh, problems. Like what if there's a, you know, a power failure in the, the day of the meeting and suddenly you can't host it like you planned. Uh, do you really want to waste another week or two getting it ready? Um, that, that being said, I think the political leadership of the agency will ultimately decide this and whether they recognize that public confidence in an eventual vaccine is as important as a successful vaccine itself. And so I think they'll read the tea leaves when the time comes. Um, if they feel like there's a risk that they're making a decision, say in October, and everyone's gonna suggest that this is being done purely because the president wants it done, they may be more likely to hold an advisory committee then uh, so that the public can see their own thinking and, and try to provide some measure of public assurance that they aren't moving that quickly uh, just because of political pressure. Flip side is if, as is probably more realistic, there's no vaccine that's ready for approval until after the election, wouldn't surprise me if they do skip the step um, just to save time. Uh, but we'll see, obviously, as we get closer. And like I said, Congress could take that decision away from FDA between now and then. Well, Mike, you are gracious in saying that uh, I had any clue that I was actually bringing this full circle to talk about adcoms at the end here. I wish I had thought that. That would have made more sense, but uh, I'm going to take it anyway. Mike, really appreciate your time. Um, a lot of lot to cover here, as there always is. Thanks, everyone who ends up listening to this. Really appreciate it. And if you have any feedback, uh, this is only the second one. Uh, as I said last time, I'm not a huge podcast fan, so please, if this is uh, the worst one ever, I'm blaming Mike. If it's not the worst one ever, I'm taking total credit for that. But if you have any feedback, things you want to talk about, things we can do better, please uh, pass them along. So thanks, everyone. And Mike, we're out. Thank you very much.